What are the sounds that move you? A skylark singing in spring? A speech that inspires you to act? A voice that reminds you of home? Words and performance have been vital lifelines throughout my life. And in this podcast series, I'm exploring how language and speech have shaped all of our lives, our work, our identities. Words, English words, full of echoes, memories. So I'm diving into the British Library Sound Archive, the nation's largest collection of almost 6.5 million recordings that span the whole history of recorded sound. I'm in here with all of this and I can't quite believe my look. In this series, I'll be sharing some of my favourite recordings with you and some rather special wordsmiths. I'm Lem Sisay. Welcome to All About Sound from the British Library. Archive helped me discover my own life story. The first time I saw my mother, I was 21. She was in a black and white photograph from the archive of New Bold College in Berkshire. I found my father eight years later. I was 29. He was a pilot. The archive at the airline detailed the fatal plane crash. Archive is powerful. Archive breathes life into story, be it the past or present. I'm living proof of it. But this isn't about me. Let's explore life in this archive. I shall start today's show with a very short poem by the late, great Hovis Presley. Wherever I lay my hat, that's my hat. And that's it. A poem about home from a poet and comedian from Bolton. A turn of phrase, an accent, a familial voice. These sounds lead us home. <laughs> <laughs> Home for me is complicated. I was brought up in the care system, children's homes, foster care. I had many homes as a child and they had lots of different people in them with different personalities and many of them didn't want to be there. So home was exciting, yeah, sometimes scary, yeah. But most homes, most families have a certain degree of familial dysfunction and if you don't believe me, then you put on the Christmas dinner this year and invite them all around. Hey, Hello. Sophie. Hello, how are you? <laughs> I'm warm with a crackly underside. Oh, that's <laughs> nice, isn't it? It sounds like pork belly or something, doesn't it? <laughs> Today's guest is writer, actor, comedian, philanthropist and producer, Sophie Willen. And I should say that we are very good friends. In today's episode, Sophie, we're using the British Library Sound Archive to inspire conversation about home and feeling at home and what it means to us. Oh, yeah, brilliant. That's exciting, yeah. The truth is, for the first seven years of my life, I didn't even go to school. I had my own key by the age of five. 
fed myself, clothed myself, ran my own schedule. You wrote, starred in and exec produced the BAFTA award-winning BBC TV series Alma's Not Normal. The eponymous Alma, played by you, is a working-class aspiring actress who has recently been through a breakup. Alma spent some of her childhood in care and some with family members, such as her lovably eccentric grandma, Joan. The series is inspired by your own experiences of the care system. Happy. Think the baby from train spotting, if she'd lived. And when I did go to school, I was eventually excluded for arriving drunk in a bikini. We talked a lot previously about our shared experience of the care system, but what does the word home mean to you today? Me today? Well, at the moment, it means my little house I'm renting in Presswich with my partner and my dog. Home's always been quite a profound thing. I think when you have been in the, the system and home has been moved so much and families change and, and all that, the place I felt the most at home, I think you'll probably relate to as a performer, is often on the stage. I felt that's been a very safe space for me and a kind of constant, a kind of anchor, you might say. And what did home mean to you in your childhood? I remember when I was little, you know, I used to have a scrapbook because I moved around so much. I felt that I needed to kind of keep kind of a record of where I was. And there was something about, in a way, the scrapbook being a record of home. Some stability, the, the scrapbook was almost home. Yeah, it's, it's always been quite a difficult one. I've always wanted to own my own house. I remember when I was eight years old, it was in my records. It's at a, Sophie was in a very defiant mood. She said she didn't like me, didn't like her foster parents and wanted to live alone. And I thought, yeah, I always wanted my own space that was mine that could not be taken from me, I suppose. I always wanted a caravan. I still have a dream to have an RV because I'd love to travel. But I'd love to be able to take my home with me. Oh, that's a lovely thing, Sophie. I actually see you in one of those Airstreams. You know, those American sort of like uh, bullet-shaped caravans? Oh, you know, the yeah, sil those silver me. ones? Yeah. yeah. They're really classy. I could be, I could see me in one of them. Yeah, that <laughs> sounds fantastic. There were no houses. There were only a few houses when I were born. Firsty Willie had been reading in the paper. No one ever locked a door. And people used to come and go all the time. They'd walk my thirsty Willie think. We'll start with the simple building blocks of home, accents and local phrases that take us home. And for me, I lived, as you know, in the villages of Lancashire near you, called uh, Lee, Atherton and Tilsley, and they were known locally as Laith, Benton, Bongs. Oh, God. <laughs> it's Lancashire dialect. It's fascinating Lancashire dialect, isn't it? It really is. And after these voices that you're going to hear now from the archive, I want to ask you about yours, you know, your relationship to accents. So let's start and hear some phrases that remind people of home. The word bampot is used in Glasgow. It describes someone who's more than just silly or crazy or but it's not done in a malicious way, it's done in a sort of friendly way, he was a complete bamper. 
One of the phrases I remember from Northern Ireland, County Down, I think it's a Belfast phrase, is one um, saying you're going up the street to get the messages. So basically it means you're going into town to buy shopping, groceries, whatever it is you need to do. I've heard it used a lot as a child. The language I grew up with in Hollins Oldham, which was Lancashire dialect, and which I haven't heard for a long time, because most people up there now have Lancashire accents, but the dialect's gone. And I can hear my father saying things like, yon little lads as wick as a flea, that little boy's as bright as a button. And, oh, dead, when there was a villain, a rascal, somebody who behaved badly, he was always called a dead ook. That chap's a dead ook, meaning an absolute villain, steer clear of him. And I'm very glad I was brought up with this rich dialect. And I met it again when I read Garwen and the Green Knight at university. So many of the words are words I'd grown up with in um, Oldham. I recognised her voice, the last one, the Lancashire one, Oldham. I loved hearing her because I know exactly what she means. Like, that's very similar to Bolton. My great granny Alice and all that language, the dialect of Bolton of Lancashire's just going now. And actually, I was at a funeral yesterday, my uncle Dougie's funeral. And I'd say he's probably the last one in my family that kind of really speaks in that Lancashire. You're all right, cocker. Hey, for what you. And as he was going yesterday in the coffin, as he was going, and all I could hear him say is, See you later, cocker. And he just had this rich way that he speaks. It's just beautiful, really. And it's really poetic. So I got really into the Lancashire poetry scene. Scene. I mean, it was there's no scene, but um, the history of Lancashire poetry. I got really into it in my early twenties. The dialect I find fascinating, and it's very similar to Scottish. It's very similar to Jamaican. When you look at patois poetry, and then you look at Lancashire poetry, it's really interesting. The rhythms, some of the words, and again, very political, very rebellious. I think it's similar with Lancashire dialect, like Teddy Ashton, William Billington, the Lancashire Romantic Radicals, all these, you know, voices, particularly the 1800s, that spoke in their dialect. It was a form of rebellion. It was a form of saying, no, we're not going to conform. You know, William Billington uh, ran the paper, I think, in Blackburn, and he was a poet as well and a socialist, and he ran a socialist paper. And, you know, so it had this whole history, I think, the dialect and, and Lancashire, and that's what you hear... You know, it's dying out now, but you hear that the intelligence of dialect as well. Mm. You know, it actually is really poetic, but it, it's about the working class being intelligent people, not the this um, kind of thing that's created now. They, they try and call you the underclass or whatever. They try and create this idea that working class people are not cultured or they don't know things or they're not passionate about knowledge. Well, does an accent give away a person's intelligence? In other words, the broader a person speaks, like if you speak like that, you talk like that, coming from wherever you're coming from, talking about whatever you're talking about, does that make you less intelligent uh, uh, than somebody who speaks in the way that I uh, am now speaking to you with less <laughs> of a rich accent? I don't think so. But, you know, like my uncle Dougie was probably one of the smartest people I've ever had a conversation with and he had a th really thick Bolton accent. My grandma had a Bolton accent. She was that had the most inquisitive mind and stuff. So I think... It doesn't have to mean that, but obviously there is a snobbery around it, which is getting better, isn't it? I mean, you're actually hearing people with regional accents on Radio 4 now. It's quite exciting, you know, but people underestimate you a bit, I think, when you've got an accent, which always can be quite powerful. Underestimate you at first and then, you know, don't feel threatened. 
then you slam them with your, your smarts, don't you? <laughs> well, all of this is in your TV series, Alma's Not Normal, and, and specifically in Grandma Jones sayings. Yeah. She's got a saying, don't waste your life ironing a man's clothes, Alma. His creases will drop out, but your wrinkles won't. <laughs> Why was it important to reflect real vernacular in Alma's Not Normal? I think it just had to be as the people are. So I wanted it to be, you know, not to have Lancashire actresses, for example, would be odd, I think, for me. And then the vernacular just comes out because I wrote it and it's kind of probably in my accent as well, really. But the Lancashire rhythm is there. You can hear that in the way the jokes are structured, but it, it just kind of naturally comes that, I think. <laughs> I lived in Bristol for a few years when I was younger. I went to secondary school there for two and a half years. And um, I remember trying to order a lime and soda once. I, that took forever. Lime and soda, lime and soda. Sorry, what? And then I just decided, I went, lime and soda. And then, ah, oh, see, because the accents were so different. And, not, and back then, I mean, I know it was only the 90s. I was very exotic as a northerner in, uh, in Bristol. It was quite funny because I went to a very mixed school, mixed race school, and there was a lot of girls of Jamaican heritage, and then there was a lot of white girls that were quite posh. And the Jamaican girls, a lot of them lived in St Paul's. And it was mixed, but I have to say, it was mainly the poorer people were in the black families, unfortunately. That's, that's that right, was, yeah. It was, it was yeah, it the Irish community and the poorer community. And the, yeah. It yeah. happened to be at this school... Um, but one of the things that was quite funny is we used to sit in class and the girls would be talking about patties and different home foods. Rice you know? and peas. And then, and... Yeah, and all the beautiful cuisine of the Caribbean and what they miss about going when they go back to Jamaica to visit and when they, you know... And I was talking about steak pudding, chips and gravy. <laughs> and we had this kind of, you know, connection going, I know what you mean, the motherland, steak pudding, you know. It was ridiculous when I looked back. But and steak puddings for me are home. I mean, yeah. I love them so you mean much. You with suet? Yeah. Yeah. So, so me yeah. and Grandma actually went on a pilgrimage around the whole of Bristol looking for a steak pudding, and we it. found one in a deep freezer in Bedminster. We walked for miles and miles and miles. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny about food and home, isn't yes, it? it? The is. connections. It really that. is. Yeah. Chat to lick to like to get excited about, to have heat, to have sweet, to have sour, all mixed together. So you're then I put my flour in, and I put my uh, yeshti rashes and my mother. Yeah, put a bit oh. of cheese on it, and you get a bit of taste. It goes like that. OK. <laughs> you kept a scrapbook, as you said, mm. and that, in its way, has become, or is, archive you know, of oh. home, the memory of home. And home's full of archival material relating to one group of people. It's all relative. And in many ways, since you and I became unconnected from home, foster parents, children's homes for me, you know, we made our own archival material in poetry and plays. And, and this becomes like a, an evidence of your existence, of Bolton, of your family, of your story of home. Oh. It's the power of archive that you're yeah. doing, you know, by broadcasting to the nation and the world. Yeah, I think there's something powerful as well about you writing the record, isn't it? When you've had records about you and everybody's had a lot to say on what you've experienced. You know, and actually the power of the, the archive coming from you and you writing that narrative, I think, is, for me, what's been really important. 
So in Alma, you know, there's that episode where she gets her records back and you see her in all these different homes, you know, and, and what that's like, just from her perspective rather than from the perspective always of the record, which I think is important, isn't it? Mm. We've written our own witness statements. They've Ooh. become the future archive, you know, the reference points and places uh, that we can go to to say, no, this is what happened. That's a really good way of putting it, witness statement. Yeah. People often think that we get the files and it's a shocking thing, which it is actually, it was yeah, for me yeah, as well. Yeah. But actually, it is living proof that you existed, that you're not crazy, that these things really did happen. Yeah, I think that's definitely true because I do think, you know, I experience people trying to minimise my experience and then to get my records back was absolute proof that was beyond me just saying, this is how I feel or this is what I experienced. This is going, no, this, this is fact, actually. It's all here by a million different witnesses. So let's not beat around the bush, you know. So that was quite powerful for me to, to go, like you said, I'm not mad this happened. And also for me to see myself as a child properly, it did help me kind of grieve for my child self and be more compassionate with myself, I think, because I was able to go, if, just look at the child objectively. This was difficult for her. So it was quite an important process for me to go to in my, in my 20s, you know. really are talking about the power of archive because of your experience is one of when a child goes into care they have reports written about them every couple of months or every month or so by lots of different people the the health people the social workers the foster parents all reporting back to this one place that's the background that is happening in your childhood and you're not often allowed to see those files mm, so my records were split into two tones, I'd say. One was before the law and one was after the law change. Because it was a change in law, which meant that you could get your records back. So they had to write like you were in the room sort of thing. And you can see that tonal change, like the way they speak about me before, you know, rebellious, defiant, rude, language like that for, you know, four year old I was or whatever. And then the way they speak about me a few years later is different. You know, it's more respectful later, you'd say. One really interesting thing about the library sound archive is that in audio we can capture the feeling and intonation of a memory, perhaps more than you might in, say, written documents. The recording uh, I'm about to play you was made as part of the listening project for BBC in 2017. Swazi is speaking to her son, Kushbir, about his adopted brother. He's quite good now, because when he first came, do you remember, he just used to throw things yeah. and take things and run off. And he um, would say, my mummy, my daddy. And he didn't like me that when that happened. I don't know that it was that he didn't like you. I think he... Because he didn't have any brothers and sisters and you didn't have any brothers and sisters. So both of you were used to being the only one and you didn't have to share anybody. And it was quite hard, I think, for you to learn to share. It was quite hard for him to learn to share. Sharing people is quite hard. I think it's nice that he calls you mummy. Yeah? He loves you more than I do. No way. And I love him more than anyone. Really? I love him in the other best 
in our family, yeah. Because I think when he first came, I think you didn't like it when he called us Mummy and Daddy. Yeah, I guess so. Did it bother you? Yeah. I just wanted me to. Yeah? yeah. Are you all right with it now? Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. Gosh, yeah, you, you know what you mean, the intimacy. You're just there with people in a very different way, aren't you? Yeah, in sound. You know, yeah. Swazi actually said that she wanted to take part in the listening project so that she has a, a conversation to keep for when Kushbeer uh, is older. It's such a sweet exchange. Yeah, it's gorgeous, yeah. I want to play you some clips which allude to the change in perspective of memory from the British Library Sound Archive. First, we have an interview with Joe Baxter speaking in 1992 about Biker, Newcastle-upon-Tyne, and the area's redevelopment in the 1970s with the construction of the Biker Wall. This was recorded by Tyne and Weir Archives and Museums and was found in their collection. Well, you start having trees, which was something you never had in Biker. The only grass you ever seen in Biker then was the bowling green and the bit in the churchyard, like, is, um, and then they start pulling in some, you know, changed it, and old shops were gone down, and they changed the, the whole style of Baker. You know, and really, it never was the same community afterwards. Before, it was, it was a good place, like, you know, it was a bit rough, but, I mean, the people were generally good, like, you know, and you sort of had um, the same neighbours had lived together for years, and uh, it was very, I wouldn't say it was a lot of vandalism, I don't think it is really no, compared to other parts of the city. We was always outside, not very far, when we all sit down now and talk about it, because with our kids we don't let them out, really, but we could do anything and still feel safe. We used to cut woods and make up games and that out the front with the other kids in the close and that. So it was most of the time outside playing and that, happily. Um, it was just inside the house. It was a bit unpleasant, so unhappy. Well. But um, I don't know. It was when I got to secondary school, I think, I started realising the, the difference with other kids' families. You know, when you go round your friends, you're old enough to go round your friends to do a bit of homework and that, realise that they're mum and dad or just mum were um, pleasant. The people upstairs just throw their rubbish out the window. I mean, one morning I had a fried egg come in the window. <laughs> uh, seriously. Another, another morning was a loaf of bread, bacon rind, other personal things that shouldn't go out the window. It's just one slab of block and I don't know about the others, but as I open my street door, I look at a blank door. There's no handle on it, no window or anything. And you think, just, it'd be lovely for somebody to come out of that door and uh, just smile at you or say something. After Joe Baxter reflecting on redevelopment in Newcastle, we heard Sally Poole remembering her childhood in Kent as captured by the BBC in 1999. In that last one, you could hear children in the background. And he's like, you can picture so much, can't you, through these recorded things? You know, it's lovely. 
It's true, and it's important as well. You were speaking earlier of accents disappearing, you know, of dialect disappearing, mm. and that's like a people disappearing, their experiences, mm. the memory of them, like our files. Yeah, it's true, isn't it? That final recording we heard about fried eggs flying through the window came from a, a radio series created by the Inner London Education Authority. And it was also by the BBC. It was found in the London Metropolitan Archives and was digitised as part of the Unlocking Our Sound Heritage project. We heard a conversation recorded in 1978 between two women, Maureen and Pam, shortly after moving into high-rise council houses in London. For me, this clip is interesting because the women are talking about quite mundane moments that perhaps wouldn't have been written down or remembered years later. Yeah, yeah, but then you get so much more from them little mundane moments, don't you? You get a sense of the whole time and place. The Biker Grove one was fascinating. Biker Grove, Biker, has <laughs> went straight to Grove. And what he was saying, which I suppose is gentrification, isn't it, in 92? He's kind of talking about the first stage of that. It's really interesting to think where it would be now if you took go back at what if there's any of that community there or if it's all, you know, disparate. Like I think of where I grew up in Atherton, now Atherton is a satellite town for Manchester, whereas it wasn't when I was a kid. When I was a kid, it was a village which really had nothing to do with Lee, yeah. never mind Manchester. Yeah. And I do think it's fabulous to keep things moving and not be too, you know, sort of over-nostalgic. Yes. And it's positive to have change. I wish we could do it, though, with keeping certain elements alive, but I suppose this is what the archives do in that way, don't they? You know, the things like dialect, things like people and culture and, you know, feel, feel important. In Bolton, actually, I did an exhibition when I was 22 there called Bolton Faces, and it was about kind of celebrating the new identity of Bolton, which I felt was an important part of the racial conflicts that were happening in Bolton, was to discover Bolton's new face, you know, Bolton's mm. face, it was called. So, you know, there was a, a Muslim woman, it was Indian Muslim woman, beautiful pink Sarah, mm. and we took a portrait photograph in her favourite place on Winter Hill, and it's this gorgeous Sarah against the moorland background, beautiful, you know. I took a picture of my uncle Dougie in a shed, and then we all did poetry alongside it, and I got, we got Arabic poetry, we did workshops in Arabic poetry, African poetry, Lancashire poetry, I taught. So, and we used loads of archives. I went to Bolton Museum all the time, got loads of Lancashire poetry as reference. And, and again, we wanted to keep a record of these people that lived in Bolton at that time. That uh, image of the Indian woman in a sari on the moorlands of Bolton, you know, that'll stick in my mind forever. And it was beautiful because the grass was so green and her top was so pink. Has writing about home changed the way that you think of home? No, I don't think it has, but I think I've chose how I wanted to write about Bolton, because Bolton's definitely a big feature in Alma, and the humour's very Boltonian, but it's mixed, I suppose, with that you know, the fact that I've lived in London, the fact I've lived in Manchester and Bristol, you can see there's other influences there, but it's got a, a kind of Lancashire humour at the core. And Bolton's very much a character in it. I mean, particularly, I think, for me, when you really see Bolton, is when Dave Spike is doing the drama class, because it, it, that sums up a lot of how I see Bolton. Like, 
everybody's trying. You know, they want to do things a bit differently, but ultimately they're just naturally hilarious. Talent. And you've got that in spades, yeah? Well, some of you have, but definitely not you, Leslie. Number two, CV. Now, having a good CV is part and parcel of being an actor. I would never have been an extra stroke supporting artiste on Corrie three times. That's three. If I hadn't got my CV in good working order. I mean, Dave Spike is very funny, isn't he? And in that role as the drama teacher, I mean, that sums up kind of characters for me that you'd meet in Bolton. You know, talking about Danny Slowski with a really thick Bolton accent. Yes. You know, so I think there's other traits of Bolton that I'm not always a fan of, if I'm honest, but wanting to focus, making a decision about what I wanted to focus on. And I wanted to celebrate it, and I wanted to show it in a positive light. <laughs> what are the sounds that make you feel at home today, Sophie? Um, my dog barking when I come in the door. I've got a puppy now, she's seven months old. Absolutely fantastic. A whirlwind of chaos having a puppy, isn't it? But that's been a wonderful thing for me, thinking now about having my own home and what that means. I'm finally in a position to have a home that I can eventually own, that be mine, which is something I've wanted, like I said at the beginning of the podcast since I was about eight years old and is in my records it's been a lifelong dream and I think in the next year I'll be able to afford to buy a home of my own which is huge so it'd be fabulous yeah Sophie it's been wonderful exploring the archives with you has there been a voice you particularly enjoyed hearing the woman from Oldham and I can hear my father saying things like young little lads as wick as a flea that little boy's as bright as a button and Oh, dead when there was a villain, a rascal. Somebody. I really enjoyed her because once she had that Lancashire thing and also she had that slightly posh tone of a woman who'd been to theatre school since. Yeah, I feel like she's left Lancashire because you can hear it in the accent and also that romanticism she has for it, which I have, is someone who's left, isn't it? Yeah. We've spoken lots about accents and dialects, but music, too, has the power to transport us home. Are there any songs that remind you of home? There's a, one that my grandma loves. She's, like, one of the only classical opera singers from Bolton, Lancashire, and she wrote a song which is my grandma's favourite song. She's actually a deeply romantic person, Grandma, and it's called What Is Life? And it's by... Hang on. We've got a, a playlist about Grandma called oh, The Shepherd. Kathleen it. Ferrier. She's a, a Lancashire, like, operatic and classical singer from the 50s, I think. The other one I love, cos this is just so Lancashire, Gracie Fields. Wow, that's so funny, Gracie Fields, cos I was told about Gracie Fields from when I was a kid because Gracie Fields was from Rochdale, which is close to Bolton. Yeah, it is, yeah. My favourite um, Gracie Fields song, which I think is so northern, we're talking about dialects and sayings, the thingy-ma-bob. I'm the girl that makes the thing that thrills, the hole that holds, the ring that drives, the rod that turns, 
You've just totally got me going now because we've got George Formby as well. Yes. George Formby yeah. and Gracie Fields. Yeah. My word. Oh, oh my God. Yeah, when I was in foster care, my foster parents, Auntie Dot and Uncle Harold, taught me. And apparently when I was little, I used to do this little impression of George Formby. I was leaning on the lamp as well, a lovely little lady walked by. Oh, me. Oh, my. I hope the little lady comes by. I can't remember it now, but I used to know it off by heart. I know the song. And I used to perform it. When I went to see my family and I knew this whole George Fonby routine, they were a bit baffled. They were like, where's she been? It's like she's gone back in the, into the time. 50s. This eight-year-old sort of doing George Fonby for us. It's fascinating, isn't it? I won't have to ask what she's laid for. She wouldn't leave me flat. She's not a girl like that. In Atherton, there's Fonby Hall. So, which was named yeah. after George Formby, which kind of that was like a physical architectural archive, which gave us the memory of somebody who was around in the 1950s and yeah. also somebody who was proud of their accent. Yeah, and it's funny how that changed around the Thatcher time, didn't it? Yeah. And then almost we're getting that back now a bit, you know, like not feeling ashamed of your accent or having to hide it, but it definitely felt like a a 70s, 80s thing, didn't it? That's right. Sophie, it's been an absolute pleasure and a joy. It's been a hoot. Thanks for having me, it's been wonderful. We play out today's show with a piece of music from the library's archive. I've chosen another Northern anthem. Here's a 1940 BBC recording of the classic Ilkley Moor Bartat. That's fabulous. Quiet, please, quiet, quiet. Now let's show them how to sing it. How it should be a little bit of Ilkley Moor Bartat. Come on. <laughs> exploration of the archive has come to an end for another episode but there's so much more to listen to if you'd like to explore further visit bl.uk forward slash if homes had ears and to see a full track listing of the archive and music recordings in this episode do take a look at the episode description this is a pixie production for the british library the producers are Katie Davis and Alex Watson. Next time, playwright Inua Ellums joins the listening party to explore how migration affects the ways we communicate and express ourselves in writing, poetry and performance. Don't miss it. Until next time, from me, Lem Sisay, goodbye. Thanks for listening. <laughs>